to reread the book. Yay! Episode eight. Yes, episode eight. It's election day, Lois. Yeah, yeah. Have you voted is, yet? I haven't voted yet. Um, I will go do that after this because the uh, the lines are usually really long in the morning. Um, if you're listening from somewhere else um, in Australia, vault, voting is compulsory, so everybody turns out. Well, most most people turn out. <laughs> most people turn out. So it just means that there's long lines in the morning. So um, yeah, I'm gonna go this afternoon. Cool wins. Yeah, I think I'm. We're gonna go and get a sausage sizzle after this is done. The yeah. Traditional Australian voting. Your democracy sausage. Democracy sausage. Yeah. It's great for those. Who, again, for those who may not be familiar with Australian voting, uh, there was this year produced a, a map um, online which has all of the nearby sausage sizzle locations where you can vote. Yeah. So that is fantastic. Good job, the, Australia. Yeah. The important part of voting is getting a sausage in a bun. In a, in, in yeah, in the in the midst of a recent couple of weeks where we've had Brexit and uh, and potentially Trump winning the US election, at least we know that we're doing the right thing with a sausage on election day yeah. even if we are elect a rubbish leader, which we inevitably will. Yeah. Uh, we're doing the BFG this week. Yeah. Uh, and so our question of the week is, if you could get any world leader to help you accomplish something, what would it be? Um, I'm going to go with Justin Trudeau. Oh, what a legend. Yeah. Oh, he pops up online all the time yeah. now, and he's like the best world leader by far. Yeah, I think he's awesome. I didn't kind of think ahead of like what I would actually get him to help me with, but I guess the obvious thing is to like make Australian politicians as cool as he is, because... Just, like, straight off the bat when he got elected, he was like, okay, let's get, like, people of every race and type of person and, Yeah, he immediately said, know, like, he wants half of his cabinet to, yeah. be, uh, to be women and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, to be women. Canada's and to be, great. To right. be, like, you know, people who have who are differently abled and, yeah, he's amazing. He's, like, the most inclusive person. And I saw the other day what made me think to use to say him was, um, he took a selfie with Obama the other yes, day. Yes, I saw that. It was really cute. Um, yeah, he's amazing. But Canada's fantastic. Like ever, like I'm, Canada's always been fantastic because yeah. they've just been so polite and lovely. But like since he came in, like I've just I've seen so many great pictures of him. Like he's planking. There was that. There was like the first incident that they had where he did like something kind of wrong. He accidentally like budged someone in Parliament, and the media tried to make a big deal out of it. But then their Parliament just spent like. 10 minutes apologizing to each other, or like five minutes after it was done. Like, yeah. Canada's fantastic. Why can't yeah. we all just be like, Canada? I think, like, that's why everybody, the go to when any, like, Western country is, like, in shambles, is like, let's all just move to Canada. Yeah. Because it's like, it's like Australia, except not hot and awesome. Better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're no. not violating human rights on a regular basis correct yeah no that's that's a great answer i, uh, I really love justin Trudeau. gays can get married there well, we'll get there eventually you know maybe, maybe. 20 years down the line <sighs> all good um uh i would go with probably the second most popular politician uh with the online realm which is obama yep um good choice good choice and uh, i would get obama to help me get some street cred He's just got this knack <laughs> for uh, for social media and for like just appealing to kind of a younger generation yeah. of voters who are coming through. Like, so, so again, he's done a lot of great stuff in his time. But like, there's a fantastic video where he hacked uh, Michelle Obama's Snapchat 
And I was like, uh, how about that national health scheme that I did, hey? <laughs> and they're just, oh, they're just, they're such a great couple together. And yeah. they're so willing to be engaged in the wider world. Yeah. Um, like, Michelle Obama was on an episode of NCIS last week. Yeah. But like, that's great. Yeah. How many other, like, first ladies would have done something like that, you know? Like, Ronald, I'm sure Ronald Reagan would have been a lot for acting, but. Well, for me, it's not even the, like, engaging with, like, on, on stuff like Snapchat or Twitter. It's um, showing that they're people. So, yeah. like, talking about the music he's listening to and, like, what he's watching on TV and being engaged in culture as as well as politics. And I wish, I wish more politicians I, yeah. would do that, you know, because I think if you – all the campaigns that we've been seeing this Australian election, all hate campaigns, oh, this person did something bad, this person did something bad. I would like to see, for a change, someone say – uh, here's a policy that we put in that worked and here's the evidence to prove it and, and supplement that with like just them being people. Like I think um, Bob Hawke was really lauded for being yeah. a guy, you know, like yeah. just a, a guy who was you could relate to because yeah. he said things and did things that were things that the everyday person does. Yeah. And you really don't get that because everything's so staged and so formalised now and I really wish that, that more people could do things like that and like what Obama michelle obama do they're, yeah. they're fantastic yeah it's just it's nice to know as like a just a person in the world that the people who are leading you are actually just people like you and they they also watch tv occasionally you and know, it they're obviously you, very busy but it helps like, you to be forgiving when they make mistakes you know yeah. like that's it's so much yeah oh, it, yeah we'll get there one day yeah <laughs> maybe not <laughs> maybe not this november yeah uh let's talk about something which is much cooler, which is the BFG. Yeah. Uh, so Roald Dahl makes his second appearance in our podcast. Yeah, it's funny, like, because we did Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as our first episode, but we couldn't really pass up doing the BFG when the movie's just come out. So, yeah, it's funny, in our first eight episodes, we've done two Ro- Roald Dahl books, but hmm. I'm happy about it because both have been really good. So no. so tell me about uh, your previous experience with the BFG, Lois. Um, I think it was one of my favourite books as a kid. I've seen the animated movie as well, probably a couple of times. Um, but that said, all I could really remember was the like overarching giants eat children because it's probably been maybe almost twenty years since I picked it up. So, okay. yeah, I but I I remember I really liked it as a kid. I really liked all Roald Dahl books as a kid because it was one of those things that felt like it was an adult talking to you in an adult way. Because, like, his stories get pretty scary and pretty... They don't shy away from violence and that kind of thing. Like, it's still all aimed at a child level. But it's, like, grisly and it's it's not very nice in places. And, like, I think as a kid you love that because you think, oh, this... Maybe, you know, maybe you slightly even feel like you shouldn't be reading it. Oh, uh, yeah, I really... That's a, that's a really good description. I remember post-watching the movie, I remember reading one of the reviews, was saying something that they felt... And we'll talk about this, was that they felt that the books kind of let you felt like you were getting away with something. Yeah, I uh, agree. And 100%. so, and, and we'll definitely talk about that when we get into the discussion of uh, how they were similar and different later on. And my experience is very limited with the BFG. Uh, the only Roald Dahl book I've read was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, was excited to read this for the first time. And I, I really enjoyed the book. Um, and there's definitely uh, that element, I agree, to it of, of nastiness. And, and there's a darkness to it, which I think a lot of... Kids' books these days, not that I'm reading them, uh, but are missing, based in, at least based in the way that they're produced on television and in movies. Um, the cast, 
for this was really, really good, I thought, as, yeah, a, as a whole. it was really great. Mark Rylance as the BFG was, his performance, even though it was digital makeup, or maybe because it was digital makeup, so they were using his actual facial expressions and then animating over it, it was captivating. Honestly, every second of looking at the BFG's face was just, you just didn't want to look away from it because it was so amazing. It was a little bit uncanny valley to start off with because you're like, this is weird. Like, this thing that I know is an animated thing is is emoting like a person. So it was a little bit strange to start off with. But, um, yeah, I, re- I really, really liked his performance as the BFG. It was so sweet especially when he when the BFG was really happy about something. It was so touching. Like, yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, the animation in this is very solid. We'll talk about that again yeah. when we get into the first bits of the movie. Uh, I mean, I really liked a lot of this cast. I don't know Mike Rylance from anything else. No. Uh, but he was yeah. really effective in this, I thought, especially his voice yeah. was, was really great. And that's a big, big element of this movie and book uh, is the way that he speaks. And I really thought that they adapted that well yeah. from book to screen. It's not the same yeah I think you have you do have to tone a little of that book down so you can understand the character yeah at least when you're hearing it because when you can read it you can reread something if you hear something in a movie you can't rehear it until yeah. you go back and watch it again yeah and that's not necessarily something that sells you to go and I see think a movie because um, he does talk pretty nonsensically a lot of the time in the book so yeah no i was about to say yeah that they dumbed it down a little bit but um you're right like it was necessary you need for the to, purposes to understand of the movie. it at the first pass in yep. hearing it, yeah. Uh, I really liked the other two actors I thought really stood out were Penelope Wilton, who plays uh, Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. She's like, really good. Every moment she's on screen is really lively and really makes you uh, sympathize with, with a character who could otherwise be, you know, otherworldly or, or, yeah. or someone you don't really contemplate being an, a, a character who's acted a lot on screen. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that she was really good. But my favourite actor was Rafe Spall, who, again, I don't really know from a lot. He played yeah. Mr. Tibbs. Every single time he was on the screen was golden. His yeah. facial expressions, his voice, the subtle bits of that character yeah, were fantastic. Was he was really, really um, good. He, his accent was a bit weird. That's the only thing I'll say that was like a drawback was I don't think he's – I think he's Spanish. I don't think he's English. Well, the, the, the and, name uh, Rafe Spall would not make me yeah. believe he's English straight away. Uh, I think he was putting on an accent because a few times I was like, oh, that went kind of American at the end there. Yeah, I agree. So, um, yeah, it was it was a little bit odd to be listening to that. But um, apart from that, he was really funny. His comic timing was really good. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I really enjoyed him. Um, I guess we should talk about the casting of the main character, Ruby Barnhill as Sophie. This is tricky. Child actors are always kind of a, an, an unknown quantity. I mean, I don't know Ruby Barnhill from anything else. She's only been in one other thing. Okay, uh, but I like she. She was definitely passable, and she wasn't yeah. bad. I wouldn't say she was great. Um, there were just a few awkward moments that were overacted. Like there was one I can think of where she did an audible swallow, like that really gulping sound that you do, but like it's like kind of cartoonish. It was just over the top. But when I see a child actor do something like that, I think that's actually not her fault. They need direction. They need to be told, no, that's that's too much. You need to pull that back, whatever. So I kind of feel like this was a Spielberg movie. That's down to bad direction of her, not down to her, I think. Yeah. Like, I, I think she was doing her best. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think she's definitely doing her best. And I think to some extent when you're doing a movie with child actors, especially ones who don't have a lot of experience, I mean, obviously, like in the case of Harry Potter, Daniel Radcliffe and, and his crew improved vastly over the years as yeah. they got that experience. Ruby Barnhill, obviously, at the start of her acting career. But I think to some extent you do have to compromise a little when you're yeah. doing a film like this. Yeah, yeah. You're never going to get like an Oscar-winning performance from from a nine-year-old or something like that yeah. on, on screen. Well, I don't really. know how old she is, but... yeah. Uh, but but and she was definitely passable, and it wasn't something that made you stop and and think that the film was bad. Yeah, you could see glimmers of you could definitely see she was talented, and you could see I could definitely see if she continues to get training and and continues to work that she'll definitely become a really good actress. Yeah. You know, she's she's definitely got the talent there. Uh, and finally, before we get into the plot, the music. Uh, yeah. When the credits roll, because uh, you don't, again, when you don't really think about who's composing the music, the music to a film until you uh, see the credits at the end. And when the credits roll at the end and we both saw John Williams come yeah. up, it was like, yeah, that's not surprising. Yeah. The, um, the music, especially the opening music, was definitely Shades of Harry Potter. Um, I don't know whether it was even referential. It might have been because she was being she was going through the english countryside on a magical adventure so i think it might have even been referential because there was that sort of da 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 kind of um sort of tune going through it um uh someone else i read a review said they also heard shades of jurassic park in places and i i agree with that as well oh, yeah. um but that's fine i mean it was john williams music it was really good it was you know perfectly it really helped the atmosphere of the film perfectly i felt suited to the atmosphere um, we left off an actor, actually, on our list of actors, which was Jermaine Clement. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Who I thought was Vinnie Jones. Yeah. Um, so Jermaine Clement was um, Flesh Lumpeter, the main evil giant, and uh, his performance was also really, really good. I thought he straddled um, scary and funny really, really well, because you, he does need to be menacing, but you can't make him too frightening because it is a movie for children. And the con- the concept is scary. I mean, he's a he's a giant called Flesh Lump Eater who wants to eat little children. So you have to kind of balance it. And part of that is through the acting and the blind delivery. And I thought he was just really, really strong. Yeah, the, the other giants were hilarious. Um, but, but also... Underutilised, I think, definitely. Yeah, yeah. The other ones, like Bill Hader was... Um, uh, I want to say Blood Butler, yeah, which was, was the offsider. So he had about three lines, and none of them were funny. And I'm like, that is such a waste of Bill Hader. Bill Hader isn't everything these days. Yeah. I wonder if he was just in this because he's continuing his quest to be in everything. Yeah, I know, but like, and I don't mind because Bill yeah. Hader is very funny when he wants it's to. Very be, funny, but... but like, it wasn't used in a funny way. Like, I wonder if there's stuff that was left in the cutting room floor of this, perhaps. Maybe with uh, with some of the giants. Yeah, that you, you don't know about. I mean, we'll talk about. Uh, Part where Blood Bottler was omitted from the from the movie uh, when we get there. Yeah. But um. So let's get into it. Uh, let's yeah, talk about the plot. Sure. So young orphan Sophie is abducted in the middle of the night by a giant. Thankfully, he is the big friendly giant who blows good dreams into the rooms of young children, as opposed to the nine other giants who live near him and eat humans. Sophie and the BFG hatch a plan to get the Queen of England to help them capture the nine mean giants and allow the BFG to live in peace. Short plot. Yeah, it's very simple. Uh, yeah, so especially when I was reading some of the reviews, some of the main comments were that uh, people didn't think this really needed to be a movie because there's not a lot of plot to it. I kind of disagree. I think um, I that think they... that's a dumb argument. Like this doesn't need to be a movie. Well, 
Nothing needs to be a movie. Yeah, I mean, well, some, but some people were criticising on the fact that there's not a lot of plot to this. And, yeah. But I didn't think that at all. I think for a family for a family movie especially, this was really good. Yeah. Uh, I thought that there was plenty to string you along. That the, They interspersed some good humour in there, some really magical moments, uh, and really elaborated on bits from the book that you can't do per se in a, in a kid's book that you need to keep short. Yeah. And I thought that they brought that world out really well. Uh, in the movie. They added a few things and changed a few things. We'll get to those when we, we talk through the plot. Yeah, but, definitely. you know, as we've said before, emphasis on the word adaptation. It's always going to be different from the book. And what we're looking at, you know, and what we sort of... Our opinion on this is that um, it's whether it makes a good movie. It's not whether it's perfect to the book. So, yeah. And I think especially now that we're seeing in our culture a lot where reworking of old works is a big thing you know yeah. like we're bringing back you know there's there's almost as many remakes as there are new properties yeah. these days and i'm sure we'll get to a time in our life where harry potter that was only made for the first time in our young age will get remade or lord of the rings and reimagined yeah exactly i mean lord of the rings has been reimagined how many times you know as a cartoon yeah. as a movie and i'm sure there'll be other ones down the line yeah uh, as technology grows and you want to you can do new things with these properties you know yeah and so i didn't have a problem with this being adapted into a movie at all i thought it was a this has been in development since 1991. Really? The, well, the, the live-action movie of the right. BFG has been in development since 1991, and they turned in scripts and then redone right. it, and it's just kind of been a development hell for a okay. long time. Uh, not necessarily under Spielberg, but he was the one who eventually got hold of yeah. it, and this is uh, this one's under Disney. Yeah. It's the first time he's ever been with Disney as well, oh, okay. which is interesting. Yeah, I know he was very... Uh, like, one of his favourite children's books, and he was basically a passion project he was really keen on getting it onto the screen so and i think that shows yeah he's a good choice for it because yeah. he's always been great with effects you know like he's had to do a lot of movies with and that he's sort of great stuff. with scope he's great with like large like sort of semi-high concept stuff and i think for a kid's movie the concept that there are giants who live in this imaginary world and then come into our world at night to steal food that is actually quite high concept for a kid's book and movie and i think Spielberg's really good at grounding that. Mm. So He's um, a great world builder, yeah. yeah. And I, I thought that they did a great job of that yeah. in the movie. And if you can't tell, I think, you know, we're kind of giving away our thoughts on the movie, but yeah, we kind of we quite enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, but you've got to address this sort of stuff because, you know, what other people think and what we think might be different. And yeah. that's, uh, that's fine. Uh, so the plot starts out with the abduction of Sophie, um, yeah. which is exactly in the book, they waste no time. Bang, she's um she's gone straight away within the first two or three pages almost. Yeah. He's grabbed her out of the window. They do add a little bit to the front here with the drunk guys stumbling down the street. And so they actually give Sophie a bit more agency. It's almost as if she co-runs the orphanage that she's a part of. Yeah. She's fighting, you know, picking up the letters that the the matron is just yeah. abandoning on the floor. She reads her magazines or whatever. Yeah. It was thought it was a very odd choice. Like, But I guess they show that she's determined and that she's, you know, yeah. she is intelligent and willing to kind of do things. Yeah. Um, um, something interesting about the four guys who are drunk on the street, they're, all four of them are also other giants. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so um, one of them is Manhugger, you know, the one with the tall, thin one with the big sticky out yeah, ears. Yeah. One of them was Butcher Boy. One of them was Bone Cruncher and one of them was Meat Dripper. So I thought that was like, I didn't notice it in the movie, but when I saw that, when I went to IMDb afterwards, um, I was like, oh, that's a really cool thing. Like, this is a nice way for them to get in the movie like, yeah. physically as well. Yeah. I wonder I if they like, had a lot of, like a lottery with the other the other giants to see yeah. who would uh, make it in. 
uh, yeah, but I think the other the other giants were um, also in it as other things. The pub landlord and a and a oh. person on the street. That's some and nice cook, double casting there. Yeah, you know the cook when they get to the palace. Yes. Yeah, that he was also one of the giants. Oh, excellent. So they were all apart from Bill Hader. They were all and Jermaine. They were all used in a second. I guess role. Bill Hader has a kind of a very recognisable. Yeah, so does Jermaine Clement. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The, all right, so there's an interesting thing they add to Sophie's character in this movie as well that they would, that they mention sp- very specifically later on, but they give her insomnia. Yeah. Uh, in the in the film, which is to explain why she's up late at night, and it kind of helps her like lend a little bit to her loneliness. Uh, yeah. That she feels. And it it also because insomnia is quite an adult thing. Which is funny because the movie does tend to take this kind of in the opposite way. It tends to make it less adult and more kid friendly. I think in yeah. a lot of ways. But, like, she's very adult. Like, when she's telling off the drunk people on the street, she's like, don't make me call the police on you. You know, the kids... And they listen to her. Like, if you're drunk, you don't listen to little kids yelling out a window. Yeah. And like you said, just, like, clearing up the orphanage and that kind of thing. She's very grown up. And I think that is a good choice because the BFG is quite childlike. And so you couldn't have two children. That would almost be the blind leading the blind. So you need an adult child if you're going to have a childish adult. So. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the BFG, let's talk about him. The, yeah. fir- the very first moment you see him, I love the animation of his movement. He's got such an elegance and a grace about it. And it, that really is a fantastic way to show what the book describes him as because yeah. he's able to hide, seem- despite the fact that he's 24 feet tall, he's able to hide behind you know thin lampposts. And, and that's how Sophie yeah. describes him as if he was moving super elegantly and as he's running away with Sophie out of the orphanage you get some great little comedic moments where he manages to hide himself in plain sight from people by acting as a tree or as a wall basically against an alley so that a car drives straight past him yeah it's really well done I love that little touch um the the first thing you see is his hand creep out and put a bin upright that he's knocked over um and I just I really liked that because Seeing that huge hand come out as the first sort of sight of him was just, it was it was really well done. It was very magical. The other thing I liked about when he was, he grabbed Sophie, so she sees him and she, she runs back in, she hides under a blanket and then his, this huge hand comes through the window and picks her up and then basically he runs off with her. What I really liked about it was um, you felt his weight when he was running. Not only did they have the sound of his feet hitting the ground, which was like a loud thud, he looked like he had weight, and you just like watching him, you felt like he had weight, which is um really hard to do in animation. Yeah, I, I really just I was blown away by the animation in this. When you see close ups of the BFG's face, you can see individual pores on his nose. I mean it's just incredible. Mm. When he's running away to giant land or giant country as they call it, um, I thought that was really interesting. In the book, they describe him as almost moving so fast that everything is a blur, and it's you kind of get the sense that even though Roald Dahl never describes it as such, that he's moving through like a, a dimensional gateway sort of yeah. thing, and that's why he has to get to his top speed before he slows down again. I didn't really feel like the movie pulled that off as well as it did in the book, and maybe they chose to go a different direction with that. Yeah. He's definitely shown moving fast as he moves past a row of trees that all whip, you know, in a certain direction following the, the wind that he uh, gives out when he goes past. But, yeah, I, I, I kind of feel like I would have preferred to see that sort of gateway thing because I, you almost well, get the sense he that flies he's in, in the, book. the book. Yeah, yeah, like he, he goes so fast he lifts into the air, like... 
he's basically running on the air and he runs up into the sky. And he definitely doesn't do that in the movie. Mm. He There's a sort of bit later, which is also in the book, where he kind of goes, oh, well, they ask him where is Giant Country and he he sort of goes skipping on the map. He puts his finger skipping through Britain and then he sort of goes off the page and onto the table. And he's like, here. And they do that in the book where it's they say, oh, well, um, there's you know how there's two blank pages at the back of the atlas? That's so you can fill in your own countries, which is like a really funny bit. But yeah, so it suggests that it's a country on Earth that nobody's found yet. But it also slightly suggests that you need to like kind of like, as you said, go through some kind of dimensional shift to get there. It's it's a bit strange, but yeah, um, I basically really... I liked it because it keeps it keeps it vague, but like vague but plausible, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah, I get, I get what you mean, and I guess when you're doing it visually, you have to. You know, it's a big special effects shot. Is, is a kind of dimensional shift. So I, I, I didn't mind the way they did it. I kind of preferred the book in this yeah. instance. Um, but it, yeah, it's not really a big deal. Uh, and so we get back to the home of the giant uh, in his little cave. Yeah. And there's some nice little touches here throughout his. It's nice to see it represented visually. The boat bed was weirdly intru- like that was not in the book. That wasn't in the book. Yeah, I didn't think so. It was very interesting that he slept in a boat. Yeah. Like a a ship, but it was cool. Yeah, really it was definitely it. interesting. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And so this is a kind of an interesting little bit because it's literally just a discussion for for twenty minutes or so. Yeah, uh, and definitely the book takes a good thirty forty pages of them just talking to each other. This is a kind of section where they do start creating the world, and they, he tells Sophie about you know what the kind of circumstance that he lives in. Uh, so that discusses kind of his life and how he's on his own. Uh, the snozcumbers, yeah. uh, which he eats. Uh, oh, God, they were so visceral. Yeah, they were, they, they were, they were very gross. So they looked like they were full of maggots. I didn't like watching them. Oh, God, they were so disgusting. There's I one, mean, that's th- the point. There's but, one like, little section where the, it's kind of as she, after she climbs out after the section with blood, blah, blah, and the, it's just kind of dripping all over. And I'm like, no, it should be like a regular cucumber, but slightly different, and it's just gross. Yeah, bit. it was Ugh. really gross. But I think, like... It's a kid's movie. Yeah. Boys love that yeah. stuff. I can see why. Yeah. Then he talks about the other giants as well, who we're going to get introduced to very shortly. Uh, and it's you know it's it's fine. I think the the visuals of Sophie kind of you. This is a kind of section they use to show the size comparison of Sophie to the kind of the world that the giant is yeah. is in. The difference is that in the book he puts her down and immediately starts talking to her, and so there's no point is she like basically after they get to Giant Land, she stops being frightened of him almost immediately. In this, in the movie, he puts her down and he starts to organise food for himself and she tries to get away. It's to, it's to emphasise that threat that... Yeah. Because that, you, you don't have Sophie's internal monologue from the book saying, oh, I think he's going to eat me. You have to show that he is yeah, doing yeah. things that could imply that he's yeah. going to eat so you. So I thought that was fine, um, but it is slightly different. Yeah. yeah. And the other big change here in this opening section is that he literally shows her that he can create dreams and give you dreams. Yeah, uh, yeah. So he takes, so he, you know, puts so her to sleep. She says, she, she says to him, I have insomnia, and he, and he shows her, and he gives her a dream, puts, somehow manages to put her to sleep. He um, reads to her. Yeah. Um, which it, it, is it, another change. So she is reading Nicholas Nickleby when he grabs her. In the book, Nicholas Nickleby is the only book that he owns, and that's how he's taught himself to read and to speak. Hmm. Yeah, that was a weird, not a really weird change, I guess, so they didn't have to explain where he got the book. But um, 
it then didn't explain how he knew how to read, I guess. Well, you see there's a lot of writings in the, the boys. There's a lot of older books, I think, in Oh, is there? Yeah, pillar. yeah. Well, we'll talk about that later because that's a very big change, probably yeah. the biggest change from a movie to that's uh, true, later on. Actually. So we'll get to that later. Uh, so we get Blood Bottler appearing. In the movie, it's uh, Flesh Lump Eater who appears instead yeah. of Blood Bottler. And they kind of, he's the only giant with any real distinctive personality or appearance in this one. Yeah. He, he, I do like that they give him some touches as the kind of head honcho. He gets a nice big kind of fur coat thing that, yeah. that he puts on. And he's bigger. Yeah, he's definitely. He's bigger still than the other giants. Yeah, definitely. And much noticeably bigger instead of in the book where they're all about 50 feet. Yeah. Uh, and he's just the kind of de facto leader. Yeah. Uh, but here he's really, he's got a great, Jermaine Clement plays him greatly. We've oh already kind God, of discussed so it, but he's, the animation's fantastic. He comes in and bullies the BFG. Yeah. And like you said, uh, he sounds like Vinnie Jones. He's got yeah. that kind he's of He's got the English thug, thug thing going yeah, for him. Cockney thug, um, deep voice, very, very deep voice. And I was thinking like, yeah, Jermaine Clement actually does have quite, quite a deep voice. It's just because he's a comedian. You don't, you don't really think about it. And I think it's interesting because I think again, when you use a comedian in a serious role like this, I mean, yeah, he had some comedic moments, but quite often you get really good perform- dramatic performances out of comedians because I think because when you're a comedian, you're like analysing how people think and how people act because then you're writing comedy about it. And so I think, yeah, quite often you do get quite good menacing or like scary or, or really awful characters out of comedians. They're because, good storytellers. Yeah, because because they can kind of do that, flip that switch. Um, yeah, I think he does an amazing job. I love when he comes in and he goes, I've got a boo-boo. Yeah, that was an interesting change. So <laughs> I, I imagine that this is kind of to show that the BFG is very compassionate even towards people who he doesn't necessarily like, mm. because I guess he's the one who treats their injuries or stuff when they get them. Yeah. Uh, you get the glimpse out the window of all the other giants sleeping there. I thought also it showed that they actually kind of need him, and that's like... There's kind of a symbiosis there. Yeah, definitely. That like they don't partic- they don't like him and he doesn't like them and they're mean to him, but they don't like absolutely shun him because they do need him. Kind of, he's yeah. a bit smarter. He's a bit. I mean, it's shown later on that they can absolutely have the power to kind of banish him or, or beat him to uh, pulp, really. Yeah. But they don't because I guess they they do see some sort of value in him, however little it is to them. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. They're, they're very faithful to the whole um, Sophie in the Snozcumber little section here. Yeah. Well, uh, he doesn't bite the Snozcumber. No, he doesn't. But uh, that bit's I wonder if that's too. a little too scary in, yeah, the, in the movie, sort of toned it down a bit here. Yeah, so in the book, Blood Bottler comes in, it's Flesh Lump Eater in the movie, to basically harass the BFG and then smells a human and goes sniffing around and uh, Sophie is scared, she's hiding and then she thinks, oh, I'll hide in the snozcumber because, you know... He'll that, never eat that. He'll never eat that, and also, like, probably it's got a bad smell, so he won't smell me. But in the book, the BFG sees the snozcumber and thinks, doesn't know Sophie's in it, and thinks, oh, I'll distract him with the snozcumber. So he gives him the snozcumber and says, oh, you'll love it, it's delicious, and the giant takes a bite out of it, and Sophie's inside it. And spits her and out. He spits her out because the snozcumber is disgusting. I like what they replace it with here because you get this yeah. great little bit of very, oh God, very so funny, funny dialogue yeah. about how uh, the BFG is convincing him that he doesn't like vegetables and it's just a bit of, oh, well, I have that. Well, I know I don't like vegetables. No, you don't like vegetables. I know I don't. I said that. You did say that. Good. Yeah. There's that kind of comedy. Yeah. And it's really well played yeah, off Yeah, it's by almost Jermaine like Clement. a Jedi mind trick. Yeah, yeah. It's very funny. So <laughs> it's he leaves really it good. Off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really liked when he was... 
yeah, just the, again, the size and weight of that character, you know, as soon as he comes into BFG's house, he's, like, ruining things because he's just too big for it. And, yeah. Um, you, you, that, that evokes a lot of sympathy, I think, especially because, and especially later on after we're going to, you know, when they come back and they get yeah. into his dream room. But, yeah, you do feel like they're really, really bullying him and that he gets a really unfair cop of it all. Yeah. Uh, so we move on to the dream catching segment. Yeah. Uh, so Sophie kind of demands to come along, and it's kind of nice that she is very forceful and she's very resourceful in in the movie, at least in terms of how she gets him to take her with her. And, you know, she uses his little contraptions that he uses to move his dreams around inside his little cave. Yeah. To convince him he wants to her to stay there because she's going to be unsafe, and so they. But she eventually convinces him to come with her, and. The they have to get past the giants. There's a little change here in the way that they portray. In the book, Sophie is in his pocket as they throw him into the air. You know they're kind of juggling him, which is, if you think about it, they he's exactly half their height. I thought about this. Like, and obviously, it's a kids' movie. You know, you have to kind of give it some liberties. But I, as a slightly maybe a roughly six foot person, don't think I could throw very easily a three foot person in the air. You know, without yeah, um, hurting yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they're giants, you know, I'm sure they're very, very strong and all yeah, that. But and it's very funny that they're throwing someone half their height, like, as if it were, like, a two-kilo toy. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, a bit funny. But it's interesting, and so they don't take that route in the movie. They do throw him around for a bit, but then they have this big set piece over two hills where they uh, put their feet on cars, and it's like they're surfing, like they're going for some sort of demolition derby thing. Yeah. It's and, bizarre. And so Sophie ends up in one of the cars that one of the giants is standing on, and she averts the the two giants hitting each other by basically turning the wheel so that the car goes off sideways and he does the splits. Yeah, it's an easier way to show that Sophie is in danger, I guess, than yeah. in terms of her being in her pocket, and that's a lot of rough camera work. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of very difficult shots yeah, to film. Yeah, they do have some shaky cam in this movie. Yeah, most of the time it's it's all right. But, yeah, if you're someone who gets sick from shaky cam, you might just want to look out for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a few bits. But uh, eventually they manage to sneak away. And we get this great... We get into the one of the most magical shots of the whole film, oh, which is, is the so dream-catching segment. Yeah. I can't recall exactly how it went in the book, but definitely in the movie they get to a magnificent... A huge tree it's mostly branches covering just above like a lake but instead of like that's not where the dreams are they have to like they walk almost as if like they jump the bfg jumps into the lake and you the gravity's reversed and you're standing effectively on the roof of what it would be if you were looking the roof of the water so, yeah if you're upside down it's hard to describe yeah so yeah your feet are where the surface of the water is but yeah. on the other side so on underneath the other side. yeah and so Sophie follows him in, and underneath the water, it's this wonderful animated section of yeah. the, all the dreams are little balls of light floating around the branches. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's yeah. such so wonderful quite, animation. So that so um in the book, it's it's again this this flying thing that he can run so fast he can go into the, the dream air. world. Yeah, so he basically flies there. So I think they took it out because they took it out before. So it's like don't want to have to explain it. He um, climbs up a mountain and through a big cloud and they yeah. emerge in this land. Um, they go from day to night as they go through the cloud as well, yeah. which was really cool. Um, but also the other change is that the uh, dreams are visible. So in the book, they're visible once they're in a bottle. You can start to see them, but um, they're not until they're in the bottle. That doesn't translate so well to a yeah. movie, obviously. Yeah, so 
this was really good because they were basically like little fairies, basically. Yeah. Um, they were really cool. And um, this was one of the sections where I didn't think her acting was very good. It's a lot of acting with CGI, I guess, which yeah. is very difficult for kids. It was very difficult for everyone, I think. Like, because she's basically, the, you have to remember the whole movie, she's basically acting by herself. Yeah. So, um, but this section, she's also having to chase things she can't see, like, and follow them with her eyes. And I'm sure they were, you know, holding things on sticks or whatever. Yeah, it's not great in sections. She doesn't quite look like she's looking at what she's supposed to be looking at. Um, it's noticeable. There's another point later where it's really obvious that the actor's not looking where they're supposed to be looking. And, um, yeah, there's just a few of those in this movie, which, you know, you're never really going to get perfectly right, I think. But it does throw you out of it when you can see that they're looking at a different spot on behind them or whatever. But other than that, this is a really beautiful sequence. Especially um, for kids coming into this, I think you really get a sense of awe and wonder about what the, the BFG does. Yeah. This is actually the first time where they give each other their names as well yeah, in the movie. Yeah. Which is a nice, very personal, intimate moment. Yeah. So he catches a, a, a Fizz Whizzler. Or, fizz Wizard. A Fizz Wizard. Well, I thought he pronounced it Fizz Wizard. Yeah, but probably. Something, that something like that. He's, he's all about the flush bunglers and the whiz bangers. Yeah. Oh, we didn't talk about the whiz bangers. No, we didn't. We should very briefly go back and mention <laughs> that because uh, so, it's going to come up again later. Yeah. The. Um, just the, before this, we get a scene... The frot... frot what's the um, drink called? The frotty... Frottle lot or something like that. Frobscottle. Frobscottle, okay. So the BFG drinks frobscottle. Yeah. Uh, and it basically makes you fart because the bubbles go upside down. For some reason, they think burping is weird, but farting yeah. is, is A-okay. Yeah, uh, so... This is a very, very kiddie moment. Yeah, so it, in the book, they explain, you know, the bubbles go down, makes you fart, he calls it whiz-popping. Um... And she has some as well, and like it's like a funny, cute moment. Yeah, little moment. In the in the movie, it's just him, and it's pretty gross. Yeah, he like launches like <laughs> he launches off his seat. Yeah, I mean, but it's funny, but it's definitely setting the stage for a moment we will definitely talk about <laughs> later in this film, and we don't want to give away a lot of it right now because um, that's going to be a great discussion. Um, when I was reading the book, I was like, okay, I wonder how they're going to do this in the movie because. I mean, I guess it's just it's it's childish humor, and it's it's not really it's not really that great. I think most most directors of like a high quality, you know, million dollar movie like this, multi million dollar movie, wouldn't want to put fart jokes into their movie. Like that's a that's congratulations, a cheap Steven joke. Spielberg. It's on yeah. your resume yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, that's like a cheap joke. But um, the, but, but when you're adapting from a book, you've got to be yeah, faithful. exactly. And so, this is definitely a big part of it. And it's very very funny. Yeah. So I appreciated that they were like. We have to do it because it's a big part of the book. And it's part of Roald Dahl's charm yeah. as well, is that it, it, you're yeah. getting away with something. This is something that parents don't talk about, yeah. but Roald Dahl is quite happy so to. They, so they were like, we have to do it. So they embraced it whole hog. And they didn't try and shy away from it. They just went, you know what? we just got to go 100% on this. And they went 110. 110. Like, oh, yeah. Okay, let's, let's not just, give it away. Let's just move away from that scene for a bit, a minute. But yeah, we'll, we'll talk about this. In a bit. Yeah, so uh, in the dream world, uh, the giant catches the... Or Sophie actually catches... She catches two dreams. So they, they catch the, the golden... Or the fizz, fizz wizard. wizard or whatever uh, it was. And yeah. that's a little differently portrayed in the movie. They portray it as Sophie's dream. It's a dream about Sophie. Yeah. Uh, whereas it's just something that she kind of like, really likes in the, the book. Yeah. Uh, and then following on from that, she accidentally catches a nightmare. 
uh, which they call a trog wallop or something like that. Yeah. And uh, so the giant bottles it and says, oh, we can't do this. Yeah. And this, this is, is a terrible p- dream. It's about that you've done something terrible and it will, you'll never be forgiven yeah. for it, which, oh. Yeah, and the way that the heartstrings. The way that the plot goes here does diverge now for a, from for probably the biggest section of the uh, the book and movie. Uh, in the book, uh, they go back and the giant gives the trogwalk to the sleeping giant straight away, and they're all having a nightmare on the ground, and that's just kind of a thing. Uh, isn't it just one of them? I think isn't it just blood bottler? Yeah, quite possibly. Yeah. yeah. And then they and he coincidentally like happens to hit someone else, and they break out into a fight, and it's yeah. just a very bit, bit of fun. And then they decide that they need to get rid of the giants. In the movie, we take a big, big different path from that. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, just as they're about to leave the dream world, the giant realizes he's asking Sophie where her blanket that she had is, and she realizes she left it on the ground where uh, the giants were fighting before as they were trying to get to the dream world. And so, it's kind of revealed that um, Fleshlight Beta found it, and he knows now that, that, that the BFG has a human with him, a human child. And so... The giant BFG realizes this and he's like, you can't stay with me anymore. Uh, and so he takes her back to the orphanage and kind of threatens to leave her on her own. Yeah, I... And the reason, so the reason he does this is that they've added in a section and they, they hinted it earlier on that the BFG has previously had another child with him and he got eaten yeah. uh, by Flesh Lump Eater. And that's, that's hinted at when Sophie puts on her first jacket from the giant spare clothes and it was the same jacket that the boy owned. And he doesn't reveal it back then, but it's clear that something has already happened. And I sensed at that point that something was different and was going to happen differently yeah. in the movie. And they do go with that further on. In, and it's revealed here that he had another boy with him and that Fleshlight Beater ate him. And so the giant has this previous repeat. And he doesn't want the same thing to happen to Sophie. Yeah. And so he leaves her back in the orphanage and he's threatening to leave. Yeah, but he doesn't leave. Like, I was all on board for that scene where she... She's like panicking because she she thinks he's left her and and it was really sad and and you know because she's an orphan and she's never had anyone and she thought she had the BFG and it's really sad but literally within two minutes of leaving her there she says I can sense you're here and then she jumps off the balcony and he catches her. Right, this I didn't like. I and didn't then, like this. And she's literally back- about to kill herself. Yeah. Like, and they don't play it off like that, obviously, because yeah. that's way, way dark. But I was like, wow, that's really surprising. Like, not you would have definitely at least broken every single bone yeah. in your body. Yeah. And then they're straight back to Giant Land. So, really, I don't like scenes where they're only, where they have to go to a, a whole different location just for an emotional reason. I really think that's lazy filmmaking because surely there was a way to get the same emotional punch and not have to have them go entirely back to London just for this one reason and then that what there wasn't even plot relevant. It was just... Well, you could have done something quite easily by taking her back to the, a location, which we will see again in the movie, which is the boy's old little living cabin. Yeah. And you could have had a nice, like, you don't have to have this, the, not suicide attempt, because it's never played off as that, but that's basically what it is. She's like... I will hurt myself unless you save yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. that's real. That's like it's bad. Dark. It's emotional manipulation, and it's not the kind yeah. of thing that Roald Dahl was going for. That's a totally yeah. different kind of darkness. And it's just, it's just, yeah, like I said, it's just crap. It's just a crap scene. It's probably one of the the only bits I really didn't like. It really took me out of it. I was just annoyed by it. I was mm. like, no, nah, this is this is stupid. Why did you have to go all the way back to London for this? And then magically she's happy again, and they're yeah, happy, exactly. and they go back to Giant Land. Yeah, exactly. 
then straight back to giant land into the actual plot. It's yeah. like, but okay. we get another section in the movie here again, one that the book doesn't have, where the giants break into. They realize because Flesh Lumpeter has realized that the BFG has Sophie with him, and yeah. so he brings all the other giants into uh, the BFG's dream cabin. Yeah, where he keeps well, his I mean, dreams. The, the whole thing of him having a whole separate secret room where he keeps his dreams is different. Again, anyway, yeah. like it's pretty much described as just one room in a cave. Like one, the cave is just one room in the book. So um, that whole thing that it's behind a waterfall and blah blah blah. I don't think it's secret because I think the giants knew it was there. But um, it's weird though that he because he he has to go through a lot to get there in the movie. Yeah. Like he has to pull a lever, bring out a waterfall, and then put the drawbridge yeah. and, and then, all that sort of stuff. But then when they come to look for the kid that he has, it, they just seem to know it's there. Yeah, it's, it's a, a bit, bit strange. It's a bit of a no, um, sort of continuity error, to be honest. Yeah, I agree. So they come in and they're... They wreck the place. Wreck this is, the place. This, this kind of works, I guess, because you definitely sympathise with him because by this point you know what the dreams mean and what he has to do to get them. Yeah. And it's so magical and they're breaking them left, right and centre. They leave yeah. this place in tatters. And they, it's scary as well. Like, I felt my jaw... I think we've talked about before. I really can't stand children in danger in films. And yeah, um, and it's following Sophie's perspective as she's trying to hide from yeah, Flesh so Lumpeter who's sniffing her out by yeah, the blanket. They're all like hound dogs at this point. It's it's kind of um almost a Rube Goldberg machine the way she's kind of she's not toppling stuff over, but like, you know, she's falling down water pipes and yeah. running across the floor and really I felt my jaw setting on edge like watching all of these giants, you know, she'd be within inches of them and then you know, she dodge out the way. Oh, it was, it was, um, it's scary for kids. I imagine. Yeah. You know? I was talking to my coworker and he was saying, Oh, do you think I should take my kids to this? And I said, well, how old are your kids? He said, the oldest one's six. And I said, probably not actually. Yeah. Like, I think probably more like eight or nine before they'd be ready to watch this movie because it is scary in places. Yeah. I don't think under six year olds would be able to cope with it. But then, so eventually she ends up hiding in uh, the boy's old cabin, the previous boy yeah. he was with here. And here she leaves the jacket that he previously had been wearing and stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, And you see, it's it's a bit of an emotional tug. You see his drawings on the wall? Yeah, and he definitely lived here with the BFG for a little while. It's, yeah. it's emotional. Yeah. It's kind of sad because, I mean, they're implying that he's been eaten, you know, yeah. which is quite violent if you think about it. Yeah. And the BFG here gets a bit of agency in that he uh, actually stands up for himself and boots all the giants out of his uh, his cabin. Yeah. Um, quite forcefully, especially in the case of Flesh Lumpeter at the very end as he throws him out through the waterfall and apparently the giants don't like water. Yeah, that's never explained. No, it's I weird. I thought it would be like, I thought it would just be some funny one-off line where they'd be like, oh, they just, they like being dirty. Because it wasn't hurting them. No. Because they, they show earlier it starts raining. That's how they get away to Dreamland because it starts raining and then... The giants don't. The like giants are like, ah! Some of them um, hide like under the ground. Like they tear up bits of ground yeah. and hide under them. That's kind of Yeah. Funny. But then it's never explained and it's not mm. part of the book. So I don't know where that was going. Yeah. And so here Sophie decides to help the BFG get rid of the giants for all after she sees all the damage that they're doing to yeah. her. Yeah. And in... So they show her getting the idea. So... Because she's, you know, been trying to think of a way to get rid of them. And they show her getting any idea because there's a picture of Queen... Victoria. Victoria. <laughs> we really very specific about this. We had an argument about the monarchy and had to <laughs> yeah. look it up. 
I was very wrong and Adam was very right because we were in the car on the way home and I was very wrong about who had been Queens of England. Anyway. Yeah, but the picture was of Queen Victoria and I thought for some for a moment here I was like, oh, have I got the timeline of this very wrong and they're about to bring bring back Queen Victoria? But no, it is it is a it's the picture is of Queen Victoria, but it gives Sophie the idea that she can get the current queen to help her. Yeah, Queen Elizabeth. Um, yeah. Because yeah. she's like, oh, well, the queen commands the army and the navy yeah. and all these people. The so this is roughly set in the 70s. Yeah. Roughly. Um, so the queen's not young, but no. she's not the ancient crone that she is now. <laughs> she's not the be- the husk that's clinging <laughs> the on to the monarchy. The husk that she is now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they breeze through the, the dream mixing bit here very, very quickly. It's a bit surprising how fast they go through it and how unexplained it is. Um, yeah. Because they do, in the book, she's like, um, how do you kind of, they, they kind of build the, the fact that he can mix dreams. And here it's only hinted at in the movie in the fact that he goes in the very early stages of the movie and mixes together Sophie's dream. I think that's okay, though, because I think when he, they come to mix the dream for the queen, it means that you already know that he can do that um whereas in the book it was like oh you can mix dreams together right yes okay well where did you even come up with that assumption yeah like it was i mean again it's a kid's book whatever but you gotta give it a bit of liberty it really does blind it really just does come in all of a sudden like a kind of deus ex machina so that's it i do love the animation that they have for the mixing of the dream he's got like a little uh like a clamp sort of a thing with holes in it um like a little circle bit and yeah. then pours the nightmare in and then adds elements of it to make it a very specific nightmare. And they have, you know, the horses charging in as the army and the, the big giant like roaring over the top yeah. of it and kind of kids a Kids skipping around and the giant grabbing the string of kids and yeah. eating them. <laughs> it's really, I love the animation. Of this I really like that bit. Yeah. Uh, but eventually this is the dream that they're going to give to the queen and they go pretty quickly again through here. They, they get straight back to Buckingham Palace. They miss out a couple of, journey back bits that they have in the book but it's fine you yeah. kind of know where where you're going with it and so they've yeah they've got a they've got a goal that they have to get this to. is fun this bit like them going over the the wall of the palace and one of the um one of the guards is like walking around the corner and the the bft snaps behind his back and then lifts sophie over the fence when he turns around and then yeah. the guard's like what what was that it's what? a nice little like, stealthy moment yeah, yeah and him sort of sneaking through the garden and um, yeah, it's it's fun. It's a fun bit. Yeah, they do change it again. It's not it's not anything that really matters in the end. But they so Sophie is put on the windowsill. The giant blows the dream in, and the queen wakes up straight away. Which I guess you know, it's, there's not much point in waiting five hours for time wise for the queen to wake up for yeah. them in the movie. You know, it's not a big deal. Yeah, the bedrooms on the bottom floor, which was a change, because in the the book they make such a big deal about the fact that. Part of the reason this plan's going to work is because the BFG can look in the bedrooms. Well, he can hear the bedrooms. He can, he can hear, hear the, the different breaths well. of guys and girls. Yeah, and those, which... but like they make a big point of it's the it's the middle window on the topmost floor of the palace that's the queen's bedroom. Yeah. Well, you know when they find her, it's just one of those small changes. I'm just like, why? Why couldn't it have been on the top floor? Yeah. <laughs> that's what it was in the book, and it makes no difference to change it. Yeah. Um, oh, it's, you know, I'm sure they have their reasons or whatever. Yeah, it's just, ugh. But uh, it's nice, the question, this is the first bit you get of the Queen and her staff. Uh, Rebecca Hall is another one of the actors we didn't mention. She does an, an okay job as the Queen's maid. They make the maid and Mr. Tibbs younger yeah. than the characters in the book, and Rebecca Hall is a much nicer maid than the yeah. one in the book. I think they do that for the 
thing that's going to happen later, which is basically it seems like Mary has adopted Sophie yep. at the end, yep. which doesn't happen in the book. No. So, um, which is fine. But yeah, I think they did that to make them. And Mr. Tibbs kind of seems like a father figure. Oh, he's more. fantastic. I yeah. love him. <laughs> so they both, they're both immediately, you're like, these could be her parents. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think that's partly why. Yeah. So they, the queen has a dream and she's waking up and the maid is like, is showing the newspaper. She's like, oh, this is very similar to your yeah, dream. Yeah, so the, the queen's like, oh, I had the most awful dream. She describes um, it very, yeah, very specifically. The, so you know that the dream worked. Yeah. Um, you know, there were giants coming in and taking children from boarding schools and eating them and it was horrible. And the maid's like, in the book, the maid goes white and she's like, your majesty, there were bones found under windows, which is horrible, horrible mental image, mm. at, at two boarding schools last night. And the Queen's like, what? And um, they kind of, they don't say the bones under the windows thing in the movie. And they um, they just, like, they downplay it slightly, but it's still, yeah, it's in the newspaper that a bunch of children have disappeared. And so the Queen's like, draw the curtains, because she remembers that there was something in her dream there. And then Sophie's sitting there, obviously, Sophie's sitting which is a nice there, yeah. reveal. The, the the bits here are all great because Mr. Tibbs is kind of on the radio and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so, so, so Sophie says, oh, you know, you know that... You know why I'm here. Why you know, I'm you here, had the dream. Yeah. If I'm here, you know the rest of the dream is right and you know the reason that I'm here. Yeah. And so you know that a giant put me here. And she's like, can you show me the giant? So she's out of bed and stuff. And um, and there's a they built up a little moment of tension that the BFG isn't going to come because he doesn't want people to see him. Yeah. So Sophie's calling out the window for him. And initially the adults are like you know, waiting to see the BFG and then he doesn't appear and you can see on their faces they're starting to think, oh, oh okay, you know, why did we believe her? Of course there's no giant. And just as they're about to take her away, the bit, she's like, no, he's here, he's here, and he eventually comes out. Yeah, he comes out. Um, and the, the, so all the, the British, like the Buckingham Palace guards uh, come out. They've all surrounded him, yeah. Because uh, Mr. Tibbs is on the radio who's like, uh, uh, First of all, like a, a back garden, please. Very, yeah. very subtly in the background yeah. of the radio, and the queen orders him to stand down. He's like, you can see that he's just like, oh, I can't believe I'm saying this. Stand down. Yeah. Stand down. Yeah. Just the way that he says yeah. his timing and the the tone of voice he uses yeah. is very funny. Yeah. Um, and so all the guard, like you get this great moment of, of uh, height difference as the the giant's kind of approaching the queen and he bows to her. Uh, and, and he's 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 trying to be. You know, formal, formal, which like doesn't really work because he doesn't really know the right words to use. So he calls her Magister, and um, yeah, it's just very sweet. Like it's he's so um, earnest. Uh, yeah, he's he's really sweet, and um, the the Queen sort of says to Sophie, oh, "Does he always talk like that?" And she says, "Yes, he has any. He hasn't had any education." Um, and the Queen's like, "Okay," and you can see. So in the book, it talks about how. You know, the queen, in, in perfect regal manner, took this in her stride and stuff like that. And I really feel like the way that the actress played her, you could see the queen adjusting. So you could see every moment, every new thing, the queen sort of going, oh, okay, I've adjusted to this now, you know, and then just taking that in her stride. I really, So I really felt like from page to screen, that was yeah. really good. This is something you can only do in a kid's book because in real life, the queen would be like, holy crap. Yeah, but uh, but here yeah, they've got to play it a little different, and they, and she's really good. I love Penelope Wilson's facial expressions and yeah. everything as she's realizing it, and she yeah adjusts really well. I think is a great way to put it. And so yeah. we come to possibly the best scene in the book here as they take the giant into the past. They're going to have to give him breakfast and everything uh, before they can enact their plan, so he can tell them what's going on. They bring him in. They bring in uh, all the bre- all the food for him and everything. It's it's a great visual. They have here. even just the scene. 
They so they they do it in the ballroom because that's going to be the the room that's tall enough for him. But in order to get there, he has to crawl through the hallway. And they're directing him because he can't lift his head up to see, so they're yeah. giving him instructions yeah, and everything. And, it's, and he's knocking over things. And um, again, it just gives you like really amazing perspective on like how big he is. They did the thing which they do in the book, which is um, his seat is a grand piano and a and a bench sitting. Yeah, it was very piano. accurate. I thought yeah. the whole thing. And, um, he, he walks in the chandelier the first yeah, thing he does in the room. Yeah, um, the table he's using is like four chest of drawers stacked on top of each other. It's it's. Um, it's just a really cool, funny visual, and the the queen's table with Sophie is ne- is next to his, and they look so tiny compared to him, and it's it's great. The scale is is really well done here. Yeah. And so uh, they're giving him breakfast. Uh, so the the queen instructs Sophie to dig in. There's a nice little moment where she pushes aside all the healthy stuff and goes straight for the strawberries and cream. Yeah, there's a huge bowl of strawberries cream in front of her, and she just pulls that towards her. And um, again, this is a really nice bit because. Even right from the start, as soon as they figure out that Sophie's not some crazy person, immediately, like, the Queen and Mary are looking after her. Yeah. Um, so, like, they put her, you know, they clearly have given her a bath and washed her hair. And, and put her in some um, nice clothes. Put her in some nice clothes. And, um, and, yeah, you know, Sophie just pulls the strawberries and cream towards her and nobody tells her she's not allowed to do that, you know? Which really helps you, like, yeah. to empathise and sympathise with the characters of the yeah. Queen and... Yeah, they clearly are just like, you know what, this kid seems like she's had a hard time, let's just let her do what she wants kind of thing, which is, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of warm, knowing smiles between adults at Sophie's behaviour, which is nice. It's a nice thing for the, nice moment in the movie. Uh, So then the giant discovers that he hates coffee as they try and feed it to him, and he instead encourages them to drink uh, his his bottle of frog scuttle with him. (sighs) This is the best scene in the whole film. He, oh, he so put, before this, the the army guys have come in. That's important. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. There's, there's, it's a very like formal situation. You know, as he's about to describe the plan and everything to them, uh, he points out where it is on the map and what they have to do. Yeah. Uh, but he encourages them all to have a drink with him, and he's brought his bottle, so everyone gets poured a bit. Yeah. And, and, and the so queen's he, really intrigued by the bubbles going down and everything as well. So and he, it's such so a. He's going, no, 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 no. She's making like the throat signal, like yeah. the hand of the throat's like, no, no, cut, they cut, do, abort. They, while the queen's saying, oh, yes, please pour us some, you, they do this, like, scene of Sophie looking from the queen to the BFG to the queen to the BFG. The BFG just, doesn't like, notice her at all. Yeah, just just go, just in horror, just in absolute It's just the best horror. comedic build, because it takes roughly two minutes from the oh first time God, the bottle appears to the... excruciating. And you know what's going to happen, like, even if you haven't read the book, because you've already seen what the results of the drink are. Yeah. And the thing, the thing <laughs> that you're thinking in your head is, I don't want to see the queen fart. Yeah, it's... Like, and you know when, that's what's going to yeah, happen. Because when he farted, it lifted him off his chair. So you're like, oh my god. The, the, um, it's excru- Like I said, was saying before, they, they really just go whole hog with this. Yeah. Like, it is excruciating. We were in a really They even go whole dog with this. Oh god. The Queen's Corgis are there as well. They ha- also have Rob Scottle. Um, we were in a small cinema that only had three rows of people. Um, and... The, every honestly, single seat every was single person up. was like, "No!" The first person, <laughs> so that they all they all take the drink. The first person to to see the results is Mister Tibbs, who does this massive fart and blows like the cutlery behind him, like <laughs> off its table. It's green and everything. Uh, the army guys are like blown off the ladders that they're using to talk to the BFG. Yeah. Um, oh, it's it's fantastic. The queen, the queen does fart and then she... But it's, she's covered by the tablecloth yeah, the and it table just blows... Yeah, the tablecloth just like blows out. 
It's it's very like gracefully and then, done. And then the corgis, they fart themselves across the room. Oh, it's great! It's so great. Like Sophie's just like head in hands this whole time. The giant is loving. It. I don't even think he hasn't. You don't see him fart again because you don't really need to. But uh, yeah, it's just all these these very formal people in oh Buckingham Palace, like just farting nonstop. It, it, it's a kid's dream. It's a young boy's dream. Oh my god! It is. So it's hysterical. It's hysterical. Yeah, even if you're not somebody, if, you, if you're someone who finds that kind of thing gross, you will find this funny. Yeah, just just the the sheer like cringeworthiness of it of it being so formal is just just so funny. It's just the, the so thing is, funny. There are the the people who find fart jokes funniest young boys. There are none of them in this scene. It's yeah. a young girl, the Queen of England, and her very royal formal staff. Yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, I, I cannot, like, explain how much people in the cinema were laughing. Like, yeah, everyone. the corgis is the piece de resistance. Because it's like, the, the sound of them farting also is like the sound of helium or air escaping oh. a balloon. It's like that really high, like, everyone else has been, like, a really deep fart, and then there's is just like, wee! <laughs> oh, so it's horrible. great. It's ecstatic. Oh, my God, it's the best. <laughs> and so we, people like were, you had to stop laughing as as the, the helicopters start moving as yeah. they start to enact the plan in the next scene. They miss out on a nice bit from the book here, uh, where the pilot of the helicopter, who's very young and enthusiastic, he's like, "Oh well, doesn't matter that it's not on the map. Like I'm sure the giant will take us there." And he's very yeah. enthusiastic about yeah. going to another land, and the pilot and the air force guy's like, "No, this has to be serious." So I mean, they do that for time saving, I'm assuming, because they take him straight to giant land. And they do diverge a little from the plot here uh, in that they, this is where they give the, the nightmare to the giants. Um, yeah. So yeah. the BFG and Sophie stop the army just outside the giants camp and they go and sit on a hill kind of waiting for the right time to do it. And the giant and the BFG realize he's forgotten his dream blowing trumpet. And so by the time that he he's like berating himself and like palming his own face, uh, Sophie's already taken the jar and has run down to the giants like, head on like right in front of them to open it up so the idea i think is that it's the it's the nightmare of look at what you've done oh no yeah, one will forgive you yeah that's right so and we so did mention will... earlier on this is something that sophie's like what's that and it's the the nightmare that the giant yeah. has picked up which is actually this they don't mention this in the book what like the name of the nightmare they're just like oh it's a terrible nightmare in this it's that's a that's as an adult that's a terrifying thought yeah. like, i could imagine having a nightmare about they, that so it's very do, specific they're like they do say what nightmare they give to the blood blood it? it's about jack and the beanstalk yeah yeah no you're yeah. right but but as in like they don't say it's not the um look at what you've done no one will forgive yeah, you yeah yeah that's terrifying yeah and so the I, I, idea i think is that the giants will what if even if the giants wake up while they're being trussed up they will be so in so much agonies in agony of remorse that they won't be able to fight back, and that is what happens with, with most, most of them. them. Fleshlump yeah. Beater is the only one who he stops it, he picks it out of his own nose before it can affect him, <laughs> yeah, which is kind of funny. But uh, yeah, it's so he wakes up while while Sophie's trying to get the jar open, Fleshlump Beater does, yeah, and he like goes for her and she she gets the jar open, it the nightmare flies to the other giants. And like you said, he, he pulls it out of his nose. So he's like going for her. But in that time, the army has appeared. Yeah. And they're trussing the giants up. Yeah, they miss out on the bit here in the book where the queen's brooch, has, who's, which Sophie got given to yeah. her, uses it to stab the giant in the ankle. I guess that's a little violent for a kid to be doing yeah. and, you know, maybe a bit visceral. Um, so they don't, they just go straight to the army here. And it's actually pretty easy. If anything, 
it is a little easy for them to beat the big villains here. They kind of do it with almost no effort at all. Yeah. Um, and you never really feel like Sophie's in danger. Not um, as much it, as you did in the first bit when no, she was yeah, running away. I agree, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not a big problem uh, because you kind of know what's going to happen anyway. But the army's very efficient. They get all the giants tied up and the BFG, you know, is, helps out a bit in, in taking down Fleshland Vita, which is a nice, you know, conclusion for him. And the helicopters just take them all off. Yeah, and, uh, so here's a really big change in the film, is that in the book, they take them back to England, and they drop them in a pit yeah. that has been built, that's double... That must be so deep, if they're all 50 feet tall yeah, in the book. Yeah, 100, they said at least double the height of the giants. So. They said, they said it, no, they said it's, it's as tall as all of them stacked on top of each other, and then another, like, 100, 100 yeah. metres on top of that. So, yeah. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet. This is literally like a like a kilometre long pit or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Like, and just in the middle of England and the people we can come and look at. And the, yeah. in the book, they're like, oh, three guys appeared and then like didn't listen to the sign one day and they fell down and got eaten. And the giants were like, yeah. Well, they would have died anyway from falling Yeah, in. yeah, exactly. Like, but it's, it's, it's kind of funny. funny. Yeah, so they take them back and put them in this pit and basically turn into a zoo. Yeah. In the movie, they fly them to an island. And this was the point where I was like, this is why they couldn't fly. Or, like, a good reason for them not to be able to fly. And it's also why they bring in that hatred of water, I think, because this is like, oh, okay, they're locked on the island. Oh, yeah. Good. (laughs) I didn't even think of that. That's a really good point. Because theoretically they could swim away. They could swim. But they're afraid of water. They're afraid of water, yeah. So they drop them on this barren island with snozcumber seeds. And they live in there. <laughs> yeah. And it's a nice, like, flying away shot is Flesh Lump Peter sitting on top of this island on his own that he's climbed to the top of to see if he can get away. And he's just, like, sad on his own. He's just like, oh, well, now I'm stuck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a nice little zoom away shot. Uh, but another big change is that the BFG declines to return to England with yeah. Sophie. In the, mo- in the book, he's got his huge castle next to Buckingham Palace, which is kind of weird because... London's pretty populated. Yeah. Well, in, in Hyde Park. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Sophie's got her own little cottage there and everything as well. Uh, but he stays in giant country uh, to farm, basically, essentially. And they give him, I'm assuming, a lot of human food seeds so that yeah. he can actually have some interesting food for once. Yeah, so they get rid of him coming back to England with them. Uh, and similarly, they so the, the explanation is that Sophie's not alone because of the giant's amazing hearing. And he can hear, you know, like mice whisper and stuff that she basically says hello to him every morning and knows that he will hear her. And you see a nice shot. That's the last shot of the film. It's her saying, good morning, BFG. Yeah. Well, and he hears it from all the way in giant yeah. country. Because she has been taken, she, she, assumedly, presumably she's been adopted by Mr. Tibbs and Mary. Yeah. Well, it doesn't, it's like not clear whether Mr. Tibbs and Mary, <coughs> Mr. Tibbs has also adopted her but he's there because she's in the palace yeah i assume in like the but, maid's quarters but mary is definitely taking a mothering yeah sort mary of kiss, stance kisses over her. her on the forehead yeah. and says good morning darling. yeah good morning darling so it's clear that she's adopted her and it's suggested that possibly mr tibbs is her partner because mm. he then appears secret romance yeah secret romance um mr tibbs did it in the closet with mary <laughs> <laughs> so she wakes up in the palace, like, kind of in a very nice room, but, like, probably in, like, a maid's quarters or whatever. Yeah. And then she whispers out the window, which is... It's nice. It's nice. It's sad. I think it, they do this because, uh, plot-wise, in the movie, it's a better conclusion than the way that they describe it. The, yeah. book, the book is kind of very open-ended to some yeah. extent. It's just that they live happily ever after. I guess it's more realistic that she wouldn't be allowed to live by herself. 
Yeah, exactly. Only it's only like it's much more 10 years old. <laughs> and for a girl who's been an orphan, you know, this is a this is the resolution of that, that she now has a, an effective, Family, at least yeah. if not a mother and father, a mother and father figure. And they, because it's a, it's a thread that's been, as we, as we said earlier, with Sophie's dream. So when they're sitting on the, the grass just before the, they give the dream to the giants, they're discussing what her dream is. And her dream is basically to have a normal life. Um, and to have children of her own and have a family and, and that kind of thing. And so this is the kind of resolution of that. Is yeah, that it's she's the way gonna, that enables her to do that. Yeah, future. so most likely they're gonna, she's going to have a, a good life now. Yeah. But they don't uh, go... They, they, they hint at what the, the actual ending of the book, which the last chapter of the book is, is really nice in that uh, it's called The Author, and it basically results in the fact that it's the resolution of the story and it turns out that the giant writes the story yeah. of the BFG. The BFG, which you've uh, just read, yeah. And it hints at that in the movie. You see some pages with some of the words from the, the book written on it. Yeah. Um, but it's not done quite as effectively as it is in the movie. And look, if I had to pick which ending I'd prefer to the story, I'd prefer the book. Yeah. But I realise what they have had to do to effectively um, provide a resolution in the film. Yeah. And that's the end of the BFG. Yay! Uh, it's... Yeah, it's a nice story. Nice, nice story. Let's do recommendations. Yeah. Uh, all right. So for the book, uh, it's Roald Dahl. It's Roald Dahl all over. It's got that darkness. We've already discussed how it lets you feel like you're getting away with something, especially if you're a kid. It talks about things that, that you know, modern movies kind of tone down a bit uh, in, in the search to be family friendly. But I think it doesn't, I think that's kind of necessary. I love, I think that's an important part of educating your kids. And when I have kids, I'm definitely going to get them to read Roald Dahl because uh, it's important to let kids feel emotions and sadness and, and kind of that the world is not a perfect place. You know, that, um, you know, not that kids actually get eaten, but that that's a possibility in a, in a dream world, you know, that, that kind of yeah. builds character, I think. And I think the book is fantastic for that. I, I mean, it's a definite recommend and a thumbs up for the book from me. Now the movie, uh, is not the same tone, but beautiful. Uh, it's a lovely story. It adapts a lot of the bits from the book. Well, it, cho- it chooses, Mostly pretty effectively what to what to bring and what to leave out and what to change. But I think the animation is alone is worth making this movie worth think worth going to see. It's the, the especially the the dream catching sequence is fantastic and I would love to go and watch it again. Just that sequence, you know, on, in a short clip on YouTube because it's just magical. The animation of the giant from the close ups of him to the bits of him moving, it's done so effectively. I think technology has definitely helped this movie to be made now rather than maybe 20 years ago uh, when they were first you know, yeah, trying definitely. to look to do a live-action film of it. And I think it's just beautiful. Uh, definitely a, a strong thumbs up from me for the movie. Um, yeah, I have to say the same. Thumbs up for both. They're really good. If you have kids, like I was saying before, maybe slightly older kids to go to this movie. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really good. I think adults and kids will like it. And, um, yeah. It definitely has the Roald Dahl touch without going over the top because obviously a visual thing can be more frightening and more... Scarring if done badly. In, in front, more, more in your face than, than a book does. But um, yeah, um, I also I think it's a, a good adaptation. I don't think it's the best adaptation, but I also can't think of what I would super do differently, to be honest. I guess I might explain a few things a little bit better, like how we were saying with the water. That's an adaptation because they that's not in the book. 
So if I'm going to add that, I'm going to explain why they hate water and not just say they hate water. Yeah, so there's just a few things like that that I'm fine with the fact that they added it in. I'm fine with the fact they added the little boy in that, you know, had been eaten. That's a good way to, like, add the tension. And But there wasn't enough of him. It was just kind of a throwaway thing. There were a few things that they added and it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't incorporated well enough. So I think it's a good adaptation. It's not a great adaptation. Yeah, uh, it's. I think I agree. I think it's a good adaptation as well. There's things that they definitely could have done differently. I think I understand why they've had to make some of the choices they have. Especially, I think a big part of that is making it visual. Um, I think that a big part of the adaptation is the way that the giant speaks, and I think they did that fantastically. You yeah. know, they they made the right decision on how far to go with that. All the characters looked the way that I imagined them, especially. I mean, I read the book, you know, just before this. And Quentin Blake's illustrations, which we haven't mentioned at all, are fantastic. And that's kind of yeah. the basis that you have to go off. And I think that they were, you know, despite the fact that it's 3D animation, obviously, very faithful to that. Um, I th- the giant looked at it for a couple of seconds. I was like, oh, that's interesting. But then I was like, yeah, that's that's basically the character that I saw on those yeah. pages. I would have preferred, maybe if, if it was me personally, I would have preferred a little more darkness to it. I don't know how far you can go with it. It's a very fine line to straddle. But, I, I, you know, in the end, they've made a good movie and... I think it's it's pretty good all around. I think it's they've they've that Roald Dahl would not be displeased um, having watched this. Cool beans, the coolest beans, the coolest beans, human uh, beans, human beans. <laughs> um, uh, so let's talk about what we've been consuming outside of the BFG. I mean, I have just bought but haven't read uh, yet. Last night, the latest uh, the latest trade paperback of Ms. Marvel. Uh, I am super excited to get into that. Uh, it's been maybe six months or so since I last read anything new of that because I've been waiting for the full trade paperback to come out so I can read six or seven issues at once. And I'm super keen because this is all the stuff that's happened post-Secret Wars, uh, which means that the character is now kind of... I, don't, I mean, I don't even know how it's affected her because I haven't read it yet. So I'm super keen to get into that. And I've been re-watching uh, one of my favourite all-time web series, which I think is probably better than a lot of TV series that I... Uh, I've seen Red vs. Blue. For those of you who don't know what it is, Red vs. Blue is what they call machinima. Uh, it's basically video game animation. So they've taken animate, they've taken control of the video game and filmed it and added voiceovers to it to make a kind of a new story. And uh, Red vs. Blue is based on the Halo universe. Um, it's great comedy. It's fantastic. And the first five seasons are fantastic comedy. The first eight, maybe even six, six and a half. And then you start. They've started to realize that they actually have a good property they can do a lot with. Uh, in terms of backstory, and so they start adding some serious elements to it and some drama, and by the time that you get to the end of season eight, it, you realise that the whole previous, you know, five, six, seven, eight seasons have really been building to some actual nice emotional moments. It's really, really underrated, I think, as a series, and I would love more people to know about it. So if you have time uh, and Netflix, uh, I would strongly advocate you go watch Red vs. Blue. There are currently 14 seasons. The first five are straight-up comedy, uh, six to eight is the second arc, and that uh, kind of adds some emotion to it. Uh, and then nine to eleven is a lot of uh, adding on that on the past, on what happened before the first five seasons, with some characters that have only been referenced at. And it's just a great job of world building all around. I really would advocate you go watch Red vs Blue. Okay, cool. I might do that. Cool. <laughs> um, I haven't read anything new. I've started a few things since uh, we last recorded. So I'm going to throw back to a book that I've read at the start of the year, which is called um, The Book of Illusions by Paul Auster. I really, really enjoyed it. It's 
it's tough to get into. It doesn't grandfather you in. You have to really, um, really work at it, but it pays it off in spades. It's about this guy who he's lost his wife and children in a plane accident and he he's basically beside himself and, and doesn't really know what to do. He's a researcher. And um, through a series of events, like starts reading about this filmmaker, silent filmmaker, who one day just disappeared, like was churning out movies like crazy and then just disappeared and gets into this mystery and then a woman appears and it's like he's not dead. People thought he basically disappeared and died and uh, she appears and she says he's not dead. Spoilers. <laughs> he's not dead and um, he wants to meet you because he writes a book about it and, and publishes it and um, he's not dead and he wants to meet you and it's the last third of the book is about him meeting this guy so it's it's a kind of a lot of lead up but what what I think is really good about the book is it is so detailed that I actually had to Google whether this was a real person that he was talking about, like the the silent film guy, and it wasn't. And but it honestly, it reads like a real story. Yeah, I would really, really recommend that book. Paul Paul Auster, The Book of Illusions. It's really, really good. And last night I watched Sherlock Holmes: A Game of Shadows, which is the Robert Downey Jr. Jude Law, it's the second one in, in those movies. I've seen those in forever, I but I remember enjoying them thoroughly. Uh, I remember Robert Downey Jr. was done Iron Man by that point? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he was back in popularity. Yeah. He'd done Iron Man by the first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're Guy Ritchie movies, which, if you don't like Guy Ritchie movies, not for you. I love Guy Ritchie movies. I love action movies. Dumb, silly action movies. They are great. Um, I, I would argue that I mean, some people, yeah. I think if you don't like Guy Ritchie, it's because you think that it's kind of a dumb premise. But I personally don't think that these action movies are particularly dumb. I think they're funny and smart, just not, like, intellectual, I guess. They're, yeah. I just, I super love, I love Jude Law and Robert Downey Jr.'s bromance. I think they're hilarious. Uh, this second one's as good as the first one. It's got Stephen Fry in it. He's really funny. I would recommend those both of those movies if you haven't seen them, or even if you had, because they're great. All right, that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Uh, next time, we're going to a multitude of times and places to discuss Cloud Atlas, which yeah. is something that I haven't seen but or read but have wanted to for ages, so I am super excited for that podcast to come up. Yeah, that's by David Mitchell, Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. Yes, who's done a lot of great media over his time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something to look forward to. You can find us and contact us at wereadthebook at gmail.com and on Twitter at readthebookpod. Yep, send us suggestions. Yeah, we've had a suggestion for Aragon to come up, uh, yep. which I have very strong feelings about uh, positively for the book and very strongly negatively for the movie, so that's going to be on our list of to-do uh, yep. in the near future. But yep, so basically if you suggest something, we will do it. Yeah. Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, please rate and review us if you enjoy the show. That helps us get to more ears. Yep, and uh, don't forget to find us on Letterboxd. Uh, that's letterboxd.com. Yep. Uh, that's where we review and uh, log all our movie watchings. Uh, so, And it's a great website all up in general, I find um, really yep. helpful. Uh, uh, and look, up, look me up on Goodreads if you want to see what I'm reading. Um, or see what I recommend, because I'm sure you're very interested in what I think about books. <laughs> yep. 
Well, you would be, otherwise you wouldn't be listening to the podcast. <laughs> uh, yep, that's going to do us for this week. We'll see you next time. I'm Adam, pod producer Heap. I'm Lois, deliver us from Weasels Mitchell. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Yeah, bye. There are big, tall, terrible giants in the sky. When you weigh up high and you look below at the world you left and the things you know, little more than a glance is enough to show you just how small you are. When you weigh up high and you're on your own in a world like none that you've ever known, where the sky is lead and the earth is stone, you're free to do whatever pleases you. Exploring things you'd never dare Cause you don't care when suddenly there's A big, tall, terrible giant At the door Well, I know it was a passion project For Stephen Sturberg 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 Stephen Sutterberg <laughs>